Well, good morning again, everybody. Glad to see that you're here this morning, and thank you, Andy, for that update with Camp Rivercrest. I'm very thankful that you did not play the fight song to Michigan while you're up here as well. We have a nice little rivalry going back and forth, but uh, today we're going to be continuing with the teaching that we've been going through in terms of what to put off and what to put on, continuing with in this series of instructions to the early church. Um, we're going to stick with this topic for a, a few weeks just because there's a lot of different passages that, that speak to this, that give instructions to the new church. And we just went through Colossians 3, and we spent a few weeks kind of dissecting that in a more in-depth way. So as we go through this part of the series, obviously some of the principles are going to be the same, but there's going to be some differences in the details that we want to hang on to, uh, that we want to apply to our own lives and see the similarities between the early church and ourselves. So hopefully we'll get that larger understanding. Today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can join me in 1 Peter. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more again about this subject and also the context in which Peter writes to apply this to our own lives and sanctification. First Peter chapter 4, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that passed suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does." The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each, is received, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, as we go to your word, I just pray that you would quiet our hearts and minds, and that you would cut away different distractions, and that you would help us to focus on your truths. Yes, Lord, give us eyes to see your truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so kind of similar to how we've been going through this type of series, we're going to break up this passage a little bit into two different areas today. We're going to focus on the section of suffering in the flesh, and in that is going to be covered what we are to be putting off in our old self, 
And then what the what we put on portion is going to deal with our responsibility to, to positively influence the world around us, all for the glory of God. Now, on top of this passage, we're also going to look at some of the context. Being a new author, being a new book that we're going into, it's important for us to understand what is being said to who. And then as we're going through this letter, we want to remember Peter primarily would deal with the Jewish Christians. Paul dealt with the Gentile Christians. Peter would go and he would speak to those in Jerusalem. And when you go back to the very first chapter of Peter, it talks about who this is addressed to. Um, It's addressed to the exile Christians, and then he lists off several different cities in which they're at. So as custom with a letter, once that church read the letter, they would pass it on to a different church. So he's addressing this letter to a lot of different Christians that are exiled. Okay, so since they're exiled, they were probably from Jerusalem or right around, and then they were displaced because of Roman oppression, because of through coming to Christ, they are now shunned, they're ostracized in their communities and families, and they're kind of looking for a different start. So they are move, they're moving to other regions uh, to join those types of churches. These people that Peter is writing to, they're going to have a strong knowledge of Jewish history. They're going to have a good understanding of the law. So it's, it's different than Paul's letters to the Gentiles who have no basis. You know, when you think about the differences, you have a lot of tradition, you have a lot of history on this side that maybe you have to overcome some of those obstacles as you're teaching, as you're instructing. Versus with the Gentiles, you have kind of a clean slate that you can lay the proper foundation from the start. Now, on the other side, with the Jews, they would have a good understanding of the Old Testament. And if, you know, God opens their eyes, they can see the connection to make that to Christ. So again, just a little bit different context in terms of who they are writing to. And even in our passage in 1 Peter 4, Peter uses the term Gentiles. But it's going to be different now versus before Christ. Before Christ, Gentiles is somebody that's not a Jew. But now that he's speaking to the church, it's more of a believer, non-believer understanding that we want want to take into when he is talking about Gentiles. So understanding Peter's audience is going to help us kind of get in their hearts and minds, understanding what they're going through. Now when we start out and we look at this first verse, we see that this passage deals with suffering. Suffering is oftentimes a hard topic to talk about based on people's pasts. But I've asked this question before. How do we view suffering? How do we understand this in our own lives? How do we understand this in in the terms of Peter writing to these people who are exiles, who are kicked out of their normal home, displaced and moved, shunned perhaps, going through different oppression? How do we understand that suffering versus our own definitions and experiences? Making it about today, I could say economically, inflation's up pretty high. Costs a little bit more to fill up your truck and your SUV at the gas pump. Store shelves or, you know, maybe your name brand stuff isn't always on the shelf and you're paying more for those goods. Stock market is down. So yeah, I mean, we're suffering, right? We're going through some of these hardships. And yes, while we experience some pains in our wallets, as we experience bills that are coming due, 
there are definite hardships. There are definite things that we have to go through that are difficult. But it's not the type of suffering that Peter is talking about here in this passage. You know, he starts off with a perspective that we're to have as believers. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So there's this term suffering connected with Christ. And we think of the suffering that Christ went to, went through, uh, and obvious answer about Christ's suffering in the flesh is the crucifixion. And perhaps the beating that he experienced before being crucified. That's where our minds go to when we think of Christ's suffering. And we're to have the same mindset as Jesus to suffer in the flesh. So perhaps you're like me. As I meditate on passages like this, I can get into this mindset where it's easy for me in America to say, sure, Jesus, I can have the same mindset as you to suffer in the flesh. I can be crucified. Knowing full well, I probably will never be crucified in my life because it's no longer a form of execution that is practiced. So it's easy for me to say, yeah, I can have that same mindset. Let's take a step back. All right, can I say, Lord, yes, I am willing to die for you. I am willing to be a martyr for you. Again, from an American mindset and culture where it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. The statistics are not very high. Does it happen in America? Sure. You think of the Bible study group uh, in South Carolina five, seven years ago that a gunman came in and killed nine people. Now, was that because of their faith? Was that because of their race? Was that because of the derangement of the shooter? Again, we try to analyze everything. To me, these people died within a Bible study. Their families still suffer. Their families still grieve. They are martyrs because they were in that Bible study, being killed just for being there. And, you know, when we deal with this issue of suffering, when we present the gospel... And we throw in the concept of counting our cost, or counting the cost for following Christ. I find very rarely in America do we need to mention this idea of martyrdom. Very rarely do we talk about how becoming a follower of Christ means you could be a martyr one day. I don't hear that in a lot of our presentations of the gospel. But this verse says that we need to arm ourselves with the same mentality of Christ. Do we use this verse as we're evangelizing? You know, martyrdom, it's just, it's one of those things that happen in far-off countries that don't have the same freedoms that we have in this country. So just stay comfortable. Here's your ticket to heaven. Here's your coffee. Enjoy the entertaining service. I mean, I think it's a different approach to the faith if we're prepared for suffering going into it. So, crucifixion. It's an obvious way that Jesus suffered. You know, later in the letter, he'll get into different forms of suffering, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But, but before that, he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, we see that term ceased, 
Uh, maybe it's stopped in your translation, in your version, and you think, all right, it's over. We're done with sin. We've come to Christ. Perfection is attained. Carry on. But then we struggle with sin again. And we can think, based on what this passage says, uh-oh, maybe I'm not saved, or maybe, maybe I haven't suffered enough. You know, and the enemy begins to tell these lies to us. You know, it's a normal attack that the enemy brings to our hearts and minds. You know, one way that we have to understand this term ceased is that the dominion of sin is broken. The dominion has ceased. And we talked about that a few weeks ago with Colossians 3, talking about how Christ broke that dominion that sin had over us. You know, the conviction that you have when you sin is this feeling, the separation, the consequences of that sin, that pull at your heart, where you understand that you need to confess, that you need to repent, that you need to get forgiveness. Or you feel like Adam and Eve and you feel the need to hide from God because you feel that guilt. You know, before the power, before Christ, sin was just breathing. It had control over us. It had the power over us. But now that we've come to Christ, now that that power is broken, we are to live for God. Peter says, the rest of the time now that you are in the flesh, that you are in the world, that you are alive, live for God and no longer these human passions. And his reason is because you've already spent most of your life living for these human passions, these lustful desires of the flesh as the Gentiles do, as the non-believers do, to satisfy your heart. And then he gives this similar list that we saw in Colossians, these things that they are to throw off, these things that they are no longer to take part of. You know, and that's another way to understand this term ceasing here. For when the Gentiles, those non-Christians who are still in your life, see you no longer partaking, see you ceasing from going and, and reliving or reveling in these lusts of the flesh, seeking ceasing to actively pursue these desires, they're going to be taken by surprise because you've stopped these activities. They're going to notice the difference in you as a believer now. And as he describes, there could be a conflict because of that. I also view it as an opportunity to share why you're no longer doing these things, to share the gospel message, what Christ has done for you. But as Peter says, instead what they're going to do is they're going to malign you. Meaning they're going to treat you with ill will. They're going to speak evil against you. They're going to lie about you. They're going to despise you. They're going to mock you just because of your faith. Looking in 1 Peter 4, I'm going to read verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is 
time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will, the outcome, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we see some more of the context in terms of what Peter is talking about in terms of suffering, how he's defining suffering, uh, what he's looking at and what he's instructing this early church to do. He's saying if you're insulted for the name of Christ. He's saying if, it's, if you're suffering according to God's will. Now let's go back up to verse 1 and think a little bit more broadly in our terms of how Christ suffered in the flesh. Jesus, while he was in the flesh, while he was walking with his disciples, did he suffer? Like I said, our obvious point is to go to the crucifixion. But did he suffer during his ministry time? Well, there were several times where he was almost stoned. His own brothers tried to convince him to go to the festival of booths because they knew at the very least he'd be arrested, possibly even killed. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane according to God's will, praying deeply. He was insulted. He was challenged. He was called a demon. He was slapped. He was mocked. He was called a blasphemer. He was tempted by Satan and many other things. Did Jesus suffer in the flesh? Yes. And through that suffering, he still trusted God. Arm yourselves with the same mind as Jesus. As you are going through hardships, as you are suffering, as you're going through trials, trust in God through it. Throw off all of these earthly things and people are going to call you crazy. People are going to malign you. People will speak poorly of you, mock you, tell lies about you. They could hardly believe that you were their friend. They're wondering, what happened to my drinking buddy? What happened to the person that I shoot the breeze with? You know, and as believers, we're called in the Gospels to, to turn the other cheek, to pray for our enemies who are cursing us, who are insulting us as we experience this type of suffering, being insulted, being cursed at because of our faith. Because we follow Jesus. Because there is a known difference from the non-believing world and they see it in our lives. And we do this because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, as Peter says in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. This is an imminent view of the return of Jesus and it spurs the believers on to evangelism to sanctification in their own lives, to be obedient to the Father and spread the gospel message. The hope that they have, have is found in the gospel message. Now looking at verse six, it's a little bit difficult in the wording and there are varied, or there are varied interpretations for verse six. Um, this verse, along with some of other Peter's writings um, and the surrounding context, is where people can get the justification for purgatory. 
Purgatory is an in-between place, a place in between heaven and hell uh, where people will go and they will maybe be able to be prayed out of purgatory or maybe they will believe in purgatory and thus be saved. And when you look at the wording, you know the way that it reads, the gospel was preached to the dead. You know, it can... It can be hard sometimes to think clearly through some of these passages and the way things are worded. But the way that I understand this verse is that the gospel was preached, past tense, to people. Those people died, a consequence of being in the flesh, a consequence of sin, that we are destined to die once. But because the gospel was preached to those people, their hope and the hope that we all cling to is that they are now living in the Spirit the same way that God does. You know, when you have varied interpretations on passages, the way that you understand the passage seems so simple. And you're confused as to why anybody could ever have any other type of interpretation. But they exist. And we continue to wrestle with the Word of God through those times. For me, when it comes to purgatory and that teaching... I find that there are other passages, such as Abraham's bosom in Luke 16, that shows that judgment happens at death, and there are no second chances. The chances to believe happen here on earth through the hearing of the gospel message. Everyone is going to give an account of their life, as Peter says in verse 5. And then you also have passages like Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. There the author says, And just as, is, uh, just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You know, people hear the gospel message. They either believe or they reject it. And a lot of times I find they reject it because they're wanting a different solution. They're wanting a different answer because they want to continue to live the lifestyle that they live. They want to continue to pursue their, their prideful and selfish desires. And they don't want to believe in this all-powerful being that is being presented before them. But you know, as, as a human race, as a whole, we have been blessed that there is one way to salvation. And it is a narrow way. It is only through the blood of Jesus poured out for you on the cross that you may be saved. It is only through him that we can find justification in that atoning price. Jesus has made a sacrifice on our behalfs. And because of that, Peter goes on into what they should be about, what they should put on as believers in verses 7 through 11. Let's reread that to kind of get our minds back into that a little bit. At the end of all... The end of all things is at hand, therefore. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep, looking, or keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, 
To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So they are to remain sober-minded. They are to remain clear-headed and self-controlled so that they can pray properly. It is for the sake of their prayers, for the sake of communication with God. Again, having that healthy understanding of the imminence of his return, being sober-minded. I liken this to the parable of the bridesmaids and being ready where half of the bridesmaids didn't have enough oil. They weren't sober-minded. They were thinking about other things, whereas there's a few that are focused on what God has said, to be ready, to be prepared. You know, this verse and the emphasis on prayer illuminates the importance of prayer in our lives, our communication with God, because oftentimes that can be an area that is neglected in our life. It's an area that we only come to God when we really need something. But the Bible makes it very clear that it is a priority. You have the easy verse if you want to memorize, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. You have so many other verses about prayer. But just the one I'm gonna, other one I'm going to give you is 1 Timothy 2, 1. It says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. You know, in our prayer life, we are to be self-controlled. We are to be sober-minded. I think about what James says is he warns us to not be tossed to and fro by the things of this world, right? But to be stable, not to be double-minded, but to be sober-minded. I want to share with you some hypotheticals this morning that maybe you can relate to, maybe not. But you know, if, if we're stuck in our walk, where we are stuck in worldly things, where the flesh is kind of taken over, maybe we're stuck in some different sin patterns. Most probably our prayer life is suffering. Most probably we're not spending time with the Lord. We're spending too much time in the world. Usually in those times we're only coming to God on Sundays or when it's an emergency. There isn't a relationship aspect there. Let me point another scenario for you. Imagine you're sitting, on, you're sitting on your couch and you're just relaxing. All of a sudden, a child comes in screaming bloody murder. And they are so amped up on whatever it is that happened in adrenaline that you can't understand a word that they're saying. They're freaking out so much that they can't even hear what you're saying to try to calm them down to try to reason with them, to try to give them uh, an answer that they need to hear. How many times do we come to God in the same way in prayer? Where we're so amped up with our own injustices, how life is unfair, how we're suffering in undue ways, all the while missing our own failings, missing our own sin, our own lack of discipleship and coming to God for that relationship. All because we want God to deal with this one situation or this one person and to take care of it because it's not fair. Talked about that this morning in Sunday school because in reality, we're God. We're sitting on the throne and what we want done needs to be done. 
Come on, Lord, I prayed 10 seconds ago, why isn't this fixed? Why isn't this taken care of? Impatience. Are we only coming to God when we want something? Are we self-controlled? Are we sober-minded for the sake of our prayer life, for the sake of communicating with God? Peter also sees the importance of expressing love to one another earnestly. You know, Paul, as we've gone through these series, in several letters, he elevates love as well as, you know, the best gift, the best fruit. It binds all things together. And here Peter is having this same type of teaching, and they are called to earnestly love one another because it covers a multitude of sins. This is speaking about the forgiveness that we can have towards one another, speaking to continually build upon those relationships. It's not saying our love for one another pays for those sins or that you can get to someone to heaven because you have loved them. But it's showing how this agape love that we enact here happens because we were first loved. We forgive because we have been forgiven ourselves. And it is a great form of love to share the gospel message with another person. Again, things that we've talked about recently over the last few months. The next thing that they are to put on is to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Being nice without grumbling. That can prove to be difficult sometimes. Hospitality, in the context, again, is this practice of receiving guests and strangers into your home. In this context, as people would travel, there wasn't, you know, your chain hotels in every single city. There might have been a few inns here and there, but primarily when you traveled, you would find somebody to be hospitable, and you would stay in a room in their house. And the kind of unspoken, spoken rule was then you would open up your home if that host were to travel to your area. So it was kind of a reciprocal thing that went back and forth. Um, So as they looked at hospitality, it was important to do that because as you were traveling, you didn't want to get scammed, you didn't want to get mugged, you didn't want to get robbed. You wanted to have a clear destination of where you were going to. A lot of times, they would also look for distant family family members to stay with as well just because it would be easier that way. But to be hospitable, to invite and welcome people. Peter also encourages them to use their gifts that God has given them. Now he focuses on just speaking and serving. Again, not an exhaustive list. But with his focus, he's acknowledging that the spiritual gifts of speaking um, and, and all of their works come from God. And it gives God glory. You think about how he's summing these up, and it, it reminds me of um, what we finished with last week in Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we see this pattern being taught to the early church through the different authors that God is central that God is worthy of glory, that we are to be giving him the glory, the praise, the honor. Now, to close, I also want to connect chapter 5, verses 5 through 11 in 1 Peter, if you want to look there with me quick. 
And I just want to connect a little bit more to what um, I said five, I meant six, to start in, in verse six. Uh, to kind of connect more to what Peter is calling for the church to put on. He says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, you know, as we look at this section, you see uh, special attention there in verse 8 as it talks about sober-minded again. And the context of there is being aware of the enemy that is around us being aware of what the enemy is going to be doing, clear-headed in our walking because he wants to devour us, because he wants to cause us suffering, because he wants to try to separate us from the Father. But you know, as Peter is finishing up this letter, he's encouraging the church to remain strong in their faith, firm in the foundations that were set by the gospel message, understanding that suffering is happening all around the world to all the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not something that it's, it's just me. But there is hope that is coming from that suffering, focusing on verses 10 and 11. Now when you look at those verbs in, in those verses, all of them are future tense. So very simply for our interpretation, it could be at the end of all things, when we're glorified, when we're made new, we'll have all of this in our, in our lives. But as he's encouraging the church, he's telling them to hold on to the hope that they have in God that they are to look to them for restoration, for strength, for confirmation, and their foundation. You know, they were in process just as much as we are as we go through that sanctifying process to be made into the image of Christ. And as believers, we need to be prepared for suffering, just as our brothers and our sisters are around the world. Again, suffering for the name of Christ, not our first world inconveniences, but suffering because of our faith. Suffering because we're different from the world. And it's through those differences that we're prepared because we know that the enemy is prowling around like a lion, that our enemy wants to shake our foundation. We also know that our enemy is not flesh and blood. But he can use flesh and blood to insult us, to mock us, and many other things. But we are to stay firm in our faith, being sober-minded, being clear-headed, and understanding the love of God and how to love others. Understanding what it means to be hospitable to those around us. Casting our cares and our concerns on the Father. In, in chapter 5, as, as it says that, you know, in verse 7, we want to understand that God has concern for us, that he cares for us, that he calls for us to cast our cares and concerns on him. It goes back to that prayer piece and being in communication with him, being sober-minded, being self-controlled. You know, when we think about putting off and on, I've heard some of the different struggles that you guys have had in the last few weeks. You've shared with me different ways of how you're trying to apply this to your life and you're facing hardships. 
First of all, well done for leaning into what the Spirit is calling you to do. But continue to press forward through, uh, through your prayer time, through working with the Father. Understand what the Spirit is trying to do in your heart and mind. The road can be tough, and we're all in process, but we're not yet arrived. So be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. Go to the Father in prayer. Cast your anxieties on Him. Submit to him, confess your sins, receive that forgiveness, and share that forgiveness with others. Receive healing from the Father for the different hurts that you've had in your life. Be different than the world that is around you to where you can stand out for Christ because that will bring him glory as you're being obedient. We want to understand how we are bringing him glory and honor with the way that we live our lives through obedience, through submitting to him. You know, when we think about and dwell on suffering in this world, you know, this life is just a blip when you think of all of eternity. When you think of the time that we're going to be able to spend with the Father. But yet we're holding on so tightly just to this part of our life. We're focusing so much on this part of our life. We need to have an eternal perspective as well. One where we get to be glorified with the Father in heaven because our hope is found in that gospel message. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the day that you have given us. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of your word, that to you, um, that to you go all the glory, the honor, and the dominion forever and ever. Lord, as Peter repeats that in several different places. Help us to be mindful of that repetition. That to you have the dominion. That to you get the glory. So oftentimes we think it's us. But Lord, I just pray that you would crush that spirit of pride in our lives. That you would convict it right now and that we can offer it to you as confession. That we can receive that forgiveness. And that we can follow you in a more self-controlled way. Lord, help us not to be tossed to and fro by the waves of this world that it creates, to be, to be hurt by the insults, by the malignment, but rather to have an attitude of the apostles when they were beaten, that they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to be beaten for your name's sake. Lord, give us a proper understanding of suffering even as we do go through hard times, Lord. Most of the times we're relying on ourselves. Father, I pray that we can put our hope and trust fully in you in all things. Lord, be with our words, be with our actions. May they reflect your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.